Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihee Jolly. I'm really excited to share today's episode, which is a conversation with psychologist Elizabeth Merrick about anxiety, therapy, Buddhism, and how they all connect. We hope to do more episodes in the future about what bootability looks like in different fields, where we speak with people who are experts in different professions to draw out the parallels between that line of work and how Buddhism views the potential of human beings. Elizabeth's insights are unique because she has experience counseling young adults, training mental health professionals, and being in therapy herself, all while practicing SGI Nichiren Buddhism, which is based on the practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Our conversation covered everything from why we feel anxiety, what it actually is, and what we can learn from Buddhism and therapy about moving towards personal happiness and growth. I'm Elizabeth Merrick, and I'm a psychologist in New York City. And I work at a college counseling center, and I've worked there for more than two decades, working with students to see them individually for counseling, as well as doing a lot of supervision and training of mental health practitioners going into the counseling and psychology field. So I want to ask both about your professional background and kind of your background with Buddhism, but let's start with Buddhism. So just very briefly, I know you've been practicing Buddhism for a while, but can you just tell me the the brief story of how did you encounter SGI Nichiren in Buddhism and then kind of what was going on at the time that you were interested in starting to chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo? Briefly, I was introduced to this Buddhist practice and chanting by the mother of one of my youngest kids' uh, classmates. And when I heard about it, I remembered that the person who cut my hair had actually given me a little intro to Buddhism book and told me that he chanted and I was appreciative. So I'd heard about chanting. And then when my uh, friend, later we became closer friends, much closer friends, uh, told me about the Buddhist practice. I was uh, kind of skeptical, I have to say, because I was a little wary of organized religion. And so me being me, I just had to say, like, are women equal in the, in the Buddhism that you practice? <laughs> because I felt like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure about anything, but I do know that I, I believe women are equal and in any religion I even looked into or philosophy. I'd like to know how they stand on that. Mm-hmm. And of course, she answered it accurately, which was it's a revolutionary practice in terms of the uh, Buddhist reformer in 13th century Japan who understood uh, you know, that all people have Buddhahood in them, included women. And so they are very much equal to, uh, everyone's equal in this practice. So I was intrigued. And when she invited me to a discussion meeting, I went and I enjoyed hearing other people chant. It sounded kind of um, like humming. And I'm a person who likes to talk. And I felt like, oh, it's kind of a good practice. You don't have to be quiet and keep things out of your mind. You can just chant and I'll try it. So I started doing it maybe five 10 minutes a day in my own house, in my own privacy, which I needed. I mean, frankly, when you start chanting to a blank wall, you're kind of like, I don't want a lot of observers, but <laughs> I did enjoy uh, the rhythm of it. And I just, I didn't really have any particular goals in mind. I was um, working. I had three kids in elementary school or elementary and middle school at that point, uh, busy husband, busy family life. And I just was 
really unsure about doing it, but felt like, why not do it? You know, give it a two week trial is what we often say. So I did, I gave it a trial and I felt um, some of the benefits immediately in terms of just feeling a little more calm in the morning. I would try to chant when people just went off to school and then get my day started. And then uh, eventually I started chanting twice a day, which is also something that's, you know, kind of a typical rhythm for us. So mm. yeah, the benefits were actually just sort of feeling calmer, more confident. I had, um, you know, in our, in our Buddhist practice, we don't um, have anything against chanting for things that you want. It's not a self-denial or chant only for world peace practice. We understand that our happiness and other people's happiness and world peace is all connected. So when I chanted, I was at sometimes chanting for a bigger apartment because living in New York City, we all can't have ginormous places to live. And it was kind of tight with all of us. And, and I was chanting about getting a bigger place. But subsequent to chanting, I began to feel much better and like actually... It's the apartment is fine. It's really I who need to change. And because I began to take more responsibility for my life, everything kind of just flowed in a much better, um, in a much better way. And I didn't need a bigger apartment. And I'm glad huh. I didn't need a bigger rent either. So yeah, <laughs> that worked out fine. That's really interesting. Um, thank you for, for sharing that context. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask more questions about it. I'm curious about that. Um, but first, let's just also get a little bit of context professionally because it's very rare that I get to have conversations with people who are well-versed in both Buddhism and psychology. And I <laughs> love this this subject. And I, I know that there's many, many questions that people who listen have just about human behavior and why we feel the things we feel. And um, so we're gonna unpack some of that today. But just to orient us a little bit, can you share a little about your professional background um, in psychology and your expertise, just so we understand who we're talking to. Sure. Uh, I have a PhD in counseling psychology, and I'm a licensed psychologist, and I know there's so many different overlapping and interconnected ways that mental health professionals and medical professionals help people. But my training and my interest was always on working from a health perspective, and counseling psychology has more of a clear history of working with towards people's strengths, working with developmental challenges, kind of working towards the potential for um, human development, human growth. So I was really attracted to and then became really well-trained in working with um, adolescents and young adults. And that was a population that interested me because in college, I sought out counseling and was so helped by it that I really saw this is such a valuable opportunity in life to begin to question, sort through who am I, um, what do I believe, what I, did I get from my family, my culture, what do I want to understand more about other people. So that's how I got into working in college counseling. And I have stuck with that all the way through. You know, I've worked in several different colleges and, you know, most consistently, as I mentioned most recently, the past couple of decades uh, at a city college in New York. And my subsequent training after doing my PhD was in Gestalt therapy, which really sees the interconnection between the person and their environment. And mm -hmm. so if somebody's waving or moving their hand while they're talking to you, you might say, I notice you're moving your hand. If the hand could talk, what is the hand saying? We don't see people as cut into pieces or cut off. And our Western mm -hmm. culture always encourages us to say, oh, we think things and then we feel them as if thinking was only in our head or <laughs> feeling was only in some other part of our body if they even allow us to feel in their theory anyway. <laughs> so kind of an integrated understanding of the person as a whole and their interconnectedness with their environment. That was what I took from Gestalt therapy. And then subsequently I got training in multicultural therapy and trauma responsive therapy. 
Mm-hmm. And these are all things that are very valuable in the setting in which I work. I also have an interest in psychodynamic, psychoanalytically informed therapy. So relationships are very important to me too. The one-on-one dialogues we can have as well as encouraging other people towards their best self potential. So those mm-hmm. are, I, I think that might be a little overwhelming for a layperson. I'm so sorry, but no, 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 <laughs> it gets kind worry. of technical very fast when you go down those little avenues. But yeah, feel free to ask any questions. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. And it's already the the little that I, I know about, bits and pieces I know about those uh, fields and modalities. It's already starting to make sense why Buddhism uh-huh. made sense to you. <laughs> So, so why don't we start with just understanding a little bit more about um, who it is that you work with? Because I understand that you specifically work with this kind of college-aged young adult population. And you also, if I understand correctly, are teaching and supervising mental health practitioners that deal with the same age group. So just so we can understand a little bit about like what kinds of things you're seeing, like what are people struggling with in terms of their their mental health or what kind of questions are they dealing with? What would you say are the most common challenges that you see young adults facing these days? It is overwhelmingly one of their presenting concerns, uh, anxiety and depression. And Mm. it may not be voiced to have anxiety and depression, but a lot of people are really struggling with the consequences of isolation, feeling lonely, uncertainty about their future, um, sense of uh, stability, sense of well-being. So those could all fall into that major category of like depression and anxiety. And I can mm-hmm. talk a little bit more in depth about anxiety, but um, the typical issues people are coming in with are, as I mentioned, there's sort of developmental stages that human beings go through. So many of the tasks of that age group are kind of sorting out who they are in relationship to themselves, people LGBTQ um, population wanting help with coming out or how to be in their family or things like that. Uh, Figuring out who they are in terms of relationships with family that sometimes they're you know, wanting, of course, to maintain healthy relationships with parents, but also questioning and thinking about themselves in terms of religion. Maybe I don't want to espouse all the beliefs they do. Does that make me a bad person? Or could I still be a good daughter and not do this thing or, you know, whatever it is. So I'd say like relational issues, identity issues, stress about college. I mean, let's just be real, too. There's that whole function of like, I'm not doing well in this class. I don't know if I can sustain this major. I'm worried about debt. I don't know what career. So there's all those very practical challenges too. And because the population I work with is in New York City, there's also a level of economic stress and economic challenge, as well as our population is uh, a lot of kids are the first in their family to go to college. And so they're kind of blazing a trail without having had people go ahead of them to say, oh no, you can drop that and still do this, or you could choose two majors or whatever. So I think there's also those normal school challenges going on too. That can be very, very stressful, extremely yeah. stressful. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I hear you. Um, just a quick follow-up on that, in case you know anyone listening isn't um, fully aware of or understanding what you mean by developmental stages and that there are like things at different in different periods of mm-hmm, our life that mm-hmm. are somewhat natural to ask or, or worry about. Can you just yeah. speak a little bit more to what that is? Oh, yes. There's a beautiful theory everyone can look up, uh, Eric Erickson, which I'm sure it's been critiqued and probably was very um, 
non-responsive to multicultural environments and all that sort of thing. But it really helped me understand the concept. So if it's still relevant, it's just that at different points in our life, we struggle with different things that we are both sort of ready for as well as challenged by and how we resolve that situation. So earlier in life, like in middle school or even earlier, we're challenging how to be in connection with other people, like how to have a friend, how to make friends, how to sustain friends. And then, you know, later on, other issues become more pressing. And so at my stage in life, beyond young adulthood, uh, more towards maturity or even older, I'm, you know, maintaining my place in society or thinking about the future and how to have a meaningful life in that way. So I think understanding that there's an age sort of, they actually are drawn as steps. And so it's not a progression necessarily linearly because sometimes we haven't actually resolved all the things we might have needed to earlier. So I might still need to work on friendship issues and I might still struggle with understanding who I am across the lifespan, but they're more predominant at certain expected societal times. One of the things that's hardest in our culture is that we have no real marking of a developmental transition. In my studies of anthropology, other societies, civilizations there, and even within different societies with our, our culture, different ways of marking, oh, now you've become more of an adult. Now you're ready to do this. Now you can have a cell phone is sort of <laughs> one of our current <laughs> markings of that, I guess. <laughs> so I think by lacking that kind of ritual, lacking that kind of... Um, societal expectations, norms for a person's development, it kind of leaves the person sort of on their own to sort it out. Am I a grown up? Am I doing? What does that mean exactly? What's expected of me? And I think that's also why young people at college are still kind of in that flux and really looking for help in sorting out, you know, mm -hmm. how do I make sense of this time? How, how, do I, how do I know if I'm doing a good job? So yeah. I think we have to also just mention the overwhelming presence of COVID and how that has affected students, not only their regular developmental trajectories, but added all these other wrenches into the process of social isol isolation, learning how to study and go to class remotely, and then, oh wait, we actually have to go in person again. How do I even speak to someone in, in a personal setting? You know, it's like very many extra challenges added on because of COVID and the pandemic. Mm, yeah, and those are absolutely. something students are coming in with too. So. Uh, anxiety about yeah. all those things. So this this is kind of interesting, you know, in terms of what you just shared about just kind of natural um, anxieties or difficulties or transitions that come with different stages of life. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly, people very easily tend to go to this place of something is wrong with me when they're struggling with what sometimes might be something completely normal, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, basically, you know, what I'm hearing from from what you're saying is that at times there are kind of these natural life questions or anxieties that emerge just based on growing up or being in different phases of life. But the feeling that something is wrong with me feels so pervasive when it comes to mental health. And uh, as someone who grew up practicing Buddhism, Buddhism teaches that there's nothing ever wrong with you, right? You you have this infinite potential, um, and you're respect worthy just as you are. So I'm I'm curious, does that resonate? Would you agree? Have you seen that? Um, let's just start there. What a wonderful thought that there are children who are not growing up thinking there's something wrong with them as a as a premise, because I think so much of our societal messaging is about look for the thing that's wrong and then we can sell you something to improve yourself. <laughs> you know, that's just living in a capitalist consumerist society. 
So I think all of us have been raised with an eye to like, should I do something about the hair? Should I do something about this? Should I, everything else, all the messaging is, no, you're not okay, because we have something to share in terms of a product. But I think the other piece that we, uh, as human beings, are very um, attentive and interested in other people's response to us. And there's obviously an evolutionary reason for that. But it's also just that we're social creatures and so that we often gauge ourselves based on the people around us. Like, am I hitting the mark? Is this normal? And I think probably this generation has uh, grown up with so much more self-consciousness and social consciousness in terms of documenting things and putting them on social media, as well as being disconnected by having to work on online, on remote and uh, I think that's probably like a double whammy of not really knowing how to gauge, am I okay? So any sense that I'm not okay might be because I'm comparing myself to other people who may be posting things that are probably not even that realistic, but they know to curate something to convey a message that might be appealing for so many more likes. So there's that whole social appearance thing that I think, it frankly, would be very difficult to know whether I'm okay, acceptable, normal, horrible, based on what people are putting on social media. But even if we step away from that, I was saying that we are social creatures, and so we look for a lot of reading from our peer group, from others around us, and we often learn a lot. Some of us, I've gotten tremendous tips and benefits by connecting with others and being validated or getting guidance that way. So it's not a terrible thing, but it is a bad, it's not a terrible thing to look to others for information and how could I be, how should I be, we know. But I think it's sad and makes people feel bad about themselves if they're relying on that for their self-esteem. And that's where your messaging about, as Buddhists, we don't have that idea that people are wrong or deficient and something must be wrong with you. We actually look towards that as a source or a place for growth or a challenge and the expectation that whatever's not feeling right, I'll be able to encounter and you know, overcome, challenge, deal with differently because I have this Buddhist belief and Buddhist practice. Mm. I wanted to say one more thing, Jihi, about... Um, feeling there's something wrong with you. It doesn't always come from messaging and comparing oneself to others. It can also be kind of an unsettling feeling of something is wrong with me because just naturally there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of a very private belief that a person may have held since they were a child and it could have something to do with one of their identities. It could have something to do with an identity that they hold in our society that is marginalized. It could have something to do with trauma. And we haven't talked about that yet, but uh, and I, I've checked the national rates. I don't know how our college compares to other colleges, but about 80% of our students, we give questionnaires that, during their intake appointments and close to 80% recorded a history of trauma. And our definition is, you know, bigger than just uh, sexual abuse or physical assault. It can also include emotional abuse and verbal abuse. And so mm -hmm. when people have received those kind of experiences, um, they have a hard time managing that. And so the extra piece to that is as a child, sometimes people are struggling to make sense of how can I live in a world that's so dangerous? Ah, I know if I were a better person, things would be more under control. And so by taking the source of the anxiety, out of control, badness, and putting it inside themselves, they can feel it's more manageable. But mm. the cost of that is then there is something deeply wrong with me and I hope nobody ever finds out and, you know, I'll just manage this myself, especially it can lead to feelings of shame and isolation and, and distrust. So 
as an, I just want to give a trigger warning for people who have had violent abuse or sexual assault, those kind of abuses, I'm going to say that there is a level of trauma that can cause physical response that's very um, unsettling, uh, terrifying in terms of connecting bodily to previous memories by your own somatic responses. Like I don't understand, a person might say, I don't understand why I feel so threatened when I stand close to somebody on the train. My heart starts racing. I start feeling anxious. And it's beyond, I mean, that could just be regular social anxiety, but it could also be some triggering of their own previous historical trauma that mm -hmm. their body has in, encoded, but they're not even aware of it logically. So I just want to say that that's a possibility too, that people are sometimes afraid of there's something wrong with them because they're suffering from a physiological trauma response that they've, that they could look at and we're really suffering from. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sort of laying all of that out. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I do. I'm curious in case there's anybody listening who's like fairly new to Buddhism, too. Right. Um, this. You mentioned earlier, like the kind of strengths based interest that you have in psychology, mm -hmm. which I assume really resonates with the idea that we all have this like Buddha nature or Buddha ability in our lives. Um, and so just, you know, for anyone who's listening who might be kind of like, oh, yeah, I feel one of the things you described earlier, like something is wrong with me and I'm privately carrying this or I'm really dealing with this, you know, difficult challenge or this unresolved trauma. Right. Um, what like how would you sort of describe that, you know, like what we what we in Buddhism describe as your unlimited potential? Does that resonate with kind of what psychology also says about people? Well, in my type of psychology, it does. I suppose there might be, and I keep referring to the unknown neurobiologist population that doesn't really explore or think about that. I think they're much more focused on an outcome based on some kind of uh, stimulus and response. But I think for most humanistic psychologists who are working with clients, that is very much something that we orient our work from. Because if we didn't believe people could change, we wouldn't be spending our time engaging in interventions that would help and support people come to more of a natural state of health. So I'll just speak from my perspective, and I have plenty of colleagues who also are oriented from that. I'm certainly not alone. I just don't know how to quantify which group of us is there. Psychologists tend to be, in case you couldn't tell, we try to be precise, we try to be scientific, and yet there's also kind of like a disclaimer, and I'm just going to tell you experience-wise, this is my truth. So my truth is that all of us believe that through our helping relationships, through one-to-one -one dialogue, through engaging with a person in their own reality, there is the probability that someone's going to be able to be helped by having honest, direct conversations, uncovering their experience, uncovering their truths, seeking for a variety of answers, and being able to pursue that. So yes, it's very consistent with my Buddhist belief in each person is unique and has their own challenges and strengths and would naturally gravitate towards a healthy, happier state. So of and happiness, let's be clear, in Buddhism, uh, we really support people going for happiness. I am happy to go for my own happiness, but happiness is really this uh, state of fulfillment, a purposeful life, a more expanded and integrated, you know, positively focused life. So yeah, that's, that's I think, a very natural orientation for me as a psychologist, and I know for other people as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So many people live in such suffering because they are feeling very alone with their worries. And one of the things that I always am slightly undervaluing, because I spend my day 
talking with other mental health professionals, talking with clients, talking with students, talking with people, I mean, trainees who are very much in that same mindset is that we forget that we, the value we add by saying something like normative, like, oh, well, it totally makes sense that you're stressed out. Yeah, what you mentioned is like these three things that is a lot to manage and you've only just started college and you're trying to do all these things. So things like that are very normal for us to say and we are totally normal for psychologists to feel and understand. And so I think coming into therapy, clients, a prospective client, has to take that risk. They may have come from an environment where they've been dismissed and nobody understood them. They don't understand themselves. So to have somebody validate and alleviate that worry is very normal for us. And we totally come from that orientation. We do a lot of study. We do a lot of work to understand what is expected. And we don't disregard people's realities either. Yeah. It's funny. What you're describing really just sounds like what we strive to do in our relationships in the Buddhist community too, right? Accept people the way that they are. Always challenge yourself to do that and then like strive towards transformation together, knowing ultimately it's everyone's own responsibility, but doing it together, especially one-on-one dialogue, <laughs> like even friendship can serve that purpose. So I I like what you're saying. It, it Yeah, anyway. So it's um, very consistent with my, my belief in how human beings change and how people are sort of, would, would sort of naturally grow, you know, mm-hmm. especially college, especially students at that stage of life. So yes. Yeah. I think the other piece we haven't talked about, Jihi, which is very important to me and my Buddhist practice, to all of us in Buddhist practice, and in therapy or counseling, is increased self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to talk to somebody else, even if you feel like, well, I'm having a dialogue with them, I'm just describing what I'm feeling, it also leads to a more more of a capacity to attend to one's own experience, to value, and to be interested in one's own experience. And when it's met by that other person's interest too, it's a very valuable tool to become more curious about your own lived experience, the ingredients of what go into it, the possibilities for change. Hmm. So as Buddhists, we chant every morning and every evening to increase our own self-awareness to, you know, that's really an important part of our own experience as human beings is to be curious about our own and to try to maximize our potential. Mm-hmm. But the other piece too is it's uh, our self-awareness in therapy. There's sometimes this bad rap that therapists are all teaching young people how to bash their parents. You know, that's a, <laughs> that's a common stereotype. Go ahead, kid. I know. What did I do wrong? You're going to go to your therapist and talk all about me, you know? <laughs> Because I think parents do try to do their best, and it's inevitable that they won't be successful in the ways that their children will have wished that they were, and they're human beings as well, and they have their own struggles. But uh, essentially, in therapy, you're being uh, experienced and understood in a way that values your own experience, as well as making room for the things that you could take responsibility for without blaming anybody else, just saying like, yeah, you know, you have that dialogue with your mom, how often? Every day, because I don't, you know, pick up my room, I'm just making up an example. Mm -hmm. And so working with the student, you might say, well, let's look at the ingredients of the fight again. Is there anything you think you could do differently? Oh, Mm -hmm. she's just so annoying. Why is she always on me? And, and to really kind of help that person unpack, you know, we can't change your parent, but we could change maybe the way you interact with them. You could change the way that you do things. And that's very consistent with Buddhism, is we don't place responsibility to every anybody else we take responsibility for ourselves 
Yeah. So it is a very independent and encouraging, slightly uh, hard for, for us all at times to like take responsibility for things. But anyway, it's the only way to go, right? There's no <laughs> way I can change anybody else. So if anything's going to change, it must come from me yeah. changing myself and changing how I am in the world. So it's very hopeful philosophy too, which psychology is as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so I want to try try to do something, I, and, and just to frame the rest of the conversation, I want to dig into sort of two problems, and then we can start to talk a bit more about the solutions and how it's connected to Buddhism. And those two problems are both, <laughs> I, problem might not be the right word, but I want to understand anxiety about oneself and then also about the state of the world, because I think those are two really real things. So if we could just start with, understanding because everyone talks about having anxiety but what exactly is anxiety <laughs> where does it come from um, maybe we can we can start there and then um, yeah yeah just what what actually is anxiety and why do we feel it <laughs> well to be very frank I was feeling a little anxious about doing this podcast recording this is not <laughs> something that's natural for me this is not something I've ever done before so sometimes our anxiety is just a simple reaction to a novel stimulus, to a new situation. And so it's normal. You're going to meet a, a new person. You're going to have a new experience. You, your body reacts to that. Your body reacts and responds. And so um, that's normal. That's like a raised heart rate, you know, all these elevated physiological symptoms. And that's just a human being thing. Mm -hmm. The type of anxiety that many people suffer from uh, are just different types, but I, I don't think they're complaining about it. I mean, they might actually, some people come in for public speaking fear. They totally dread being called on by the professor in the class. They can't manage themselves if they have to interact with anybody after class. So in therapy, we can work on like how to engage that situation differently, how to deal with through breathing or cognitive beliefs, how you might challenge that situation differently in order to feel more at ease and then have the victory of becoming a person who doesn't suffer that kind of anxiety anymore. So that's one type of anxiety. So one of our recommendations when somebody does have public speaking anxiety is, I know you'll hate to hear this, but the more you avoid something that you're afraid of, the stronger that response of avoidance becomes. So you need to just jump in, keep swimming, you'll be fine. And we can help you work on the, the feelings and thoughts and all the other stuff. So the other kind of anxiety that's probably what uh, is more complicated and harder to grapple with is kind of a pervasive sense of anxiety, a pervasive sense of kind of doom or dread that is uh, affecting someone's well-being. And so that's more of a serious, or because it affects somebody's daily functioning, then we'd call that like anxiety that needs more attention and needs to be unpacked. So mm -hmm. um, I think one thing that I had been thinking about was how many people are being affected by climate change, awareness of violent conflict, awareness of the precariousness of uh, the planet, especially in terms of climate change, but in terms of, you know, what good, what, what can I do about that kind of that helplessness and that um, sense of everything's out of control, and it's going in a very bad direction. You know, I struggle with that too. So I think the key is like how to not be paralyzed by that. Mm -hmm. You know, how much is this affecting my functioning. I think those thoughts about like existential questions are very common among young people, right? I mean, that's sort of the time of life to be figuring out like, 
who am I? And some of us are more or less prone to that. Let's just be honest. There are kids who are more or less anxious, probably when you met them in kindergarten. I was probably one of them that was like, I'm just going to stay over here. I don't know what's up with you all, but I got to get my grounding <laughs> or, you know, or maybe I was rocking a little bit, you know, trying to get some comfort. I think certain of us are more sensitive to uh, stimuli that make us anxious or have more or less comfort available to us. So just kind of normalizing that is like just because you feel anxiety, but somebody else doesn't, doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. It just means like, you know, there's a continuum. So mm -hmm. as Buddhism teaches us, each person is unique. So respecting that difference without devaluing it. Mm -hmm. So on the temperament scale, there's probably like some difference in people's receptivity or responsivity to anxiety, as well as the way that they feel and manifest anxiety. And then the other piece I was going to say is that Oftentimes, that kind of anxiety about the global situation or climate change is something that's further down the line for some of our students. They really are focusing right now, on, I just need to pass this class. I just need to get this GPA to get that internship at the big bank because I just need to get a job because my whole, I'm the first in my family. You know, I'm just making it very real in terms of the kinds of situations our students are dealing with is they can't really afford that kind of thought. And they may be just having to focus on paying the tuition and getting through. So just keep that real as well. I'm sure there's a range there. But. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm hearing, um, and what I, what I like about what you're saying is that we don't sort of need to overanalyze the sources. Like it's, it's just as human beings, we might have these experiences and some of us might deal with anxiety, you know, more than others. Um, what, but one thing that you did say that I, I, would love to dig into is you mentioned like it's possible to have the victory of not suffering from a certain kind of anxiety anymore which actually I mean that really resonates with me because Buddhism is all about winning over yourself whether it's like an internal battle or it's an external challenge that you're facing or a goal that you have there is like sort of a beginning middle and end of I'm really going to overcome something but whenever I've heard about people talk about things like anxiety it's like this is who I am and I'm stuck this way forever and there's nothing I can do about it which doesn't sound like what you're saying so I'd love to to hear yeah like uh more about that does that make sense totally and uh you know I think it's easiest to see in the example I gave about I hate public speaking I hope I never have to speak again in public there's so many people like that that it's very simple or I have to go to class I dread going to class I mean there's some kind of situational things that are or flying, you know, these are all pretty normal, you know, within the range of common anxiety producers. And so yes, counselors, psychologists, medication from psychiatrists may also help. You know, you can, you can get through those. You can learn and train yourself to think differently, to feel differently and to, oh, I don't even mind flying anymore. I don't mind public speaking. You know, you can get through those types of anxieties. The other piece that people are like, I'm just anxious. And I don't think I'll ever get through it. This is what I have to live with. That's not true either. You know, I'm, I'm acknowledging that there are probably certain propensity for anxiety and we probably have to allow for people who are of that temperament to build some kind of possibility that they may need to gauge and take care of themselves differently than somebody else. So it might require medication. It might require um, a very consistent self-care routine. 
I, I don't drink coffee, by the way, and there's a reason for that. It makes me extremely agitated and very annoying to be around. But I think in our society, people don't even question, like, well, everybody drinks coffee. You're like, just be curious about that. Is that really a truth for you? Maybe you don't, maybe the sleepiness is a better thing than the anxiety that you're increasing by drinking coffee. I mean, these are just simple interventions, but those are very possible, very available for people. Exercising more, that gets out a lot of people's extra energy Mm-hmm. There's another trick that is very um, helpful to people uh, in terms of when I feel anxious in front of doing like a presentation or something, I framed it in my own mind as excitement. That was so helpful to me. Instead of pathologizing myself, I could just say, oh, I'm feeling very excited. And I think if people began to listen to their own anxiety and kind of question, does it just have to be anxiety? What else is in there? Is it, is it a certain situation that prompts me to feel this way? Is it more global? Is it a sense of my own mortality? You know, like really being able to tolerate uh, looking towards and then getting help with something. So no, it's very possible. I will even give you the very positive example of someone being able to, after a lot of therapy and a lot of chanting, being able to get through their own sort of orientation to life of being very anxious. I can't really gauge my own level of like, would I have identified as an anxious person? I don't think so. But I can see now through my Buddhist practice and through therapy, how I've become so much more connected with myself and the world in a much less anxious way. It sounds like everything is transformable from the way that you're talking about it. And Buddhism does teach exactly that. But then, you know, in my experience practicing Buddhism, what it comes down to is our core beliefs about ourselves also drive whether we think things can change or not. And I'm wondering, you know, in in psychology or even just working with students or seeing students dealing with these kinds of things, what is the sort of core, core belief piece of it or the orientation that we should be having towards ourselves and our value as people in order to then be like, okay, I can tackle this anxiety or I'm going to take the steps to, to take care of myself or what have you. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I don't think it's anything I could give a prescription for other than something that I've already said that may sound very weak, but it's curiosity. Hmm. You know, I think without having any capacity to look at oneself or any ability to tolerate what am I engaging with? That is where probably the most difficult struggles come mm-hmm. is and in therapy as a counselor and as a client is like when I don't have an open minded possibility. I'm not saying I'm all open minded all the time, but when I limit myself that way, then it is very hard because I've already foreclosed on something or that person's never going to change. I can't change. The world's never going to change. And that's a very, very hard thing to combat. I think there's a certain level of willingness a certain level of courage. I just really want to acknowledge everybody who goes into counseling, everybody uh, who takes that risk of like trying chanting or doing something different. Humans by nature have a real propensity to stick with the same stuff, even if it doesn't work. We're like, oh, no, I'd rather just be in pain and keep doing the same painful thing Mm because at least I know what that is. Mm -hmm. It takes an awful lot of courage to say, I'll just do it differently and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. I have lots of experience with that. It's so hard to it's so hard to change, even if you you know that the thing that you're doing isn't serving you. It's very very real. It's familiar. Yeah, it's familiar. We we're like that, you know. We can't. We just part of us. I'm sure a part of our human nature. Yeah, yeah. So um, I I I would love to ask a little bit directly about Buddhism now because. Um, 
you know, like in so again, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast um, generally, but Buddhist practice or SJ Nichiren Buddhist practice has multiple components, right? Of course, it's chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo to really tap into your Buddha ability. It's participating in a Buddhist community and developing friendship and like caring for other people and receiving care. And then it's also studying the Buddhist philosophy. Um, but I, I wonder, you know, in your experience, just like developing your own practice and seeing your own life change, but also I'm sure witnessing other people change. Why do you think those those elements of Buddhism are effective? Yeah, uh, let's start with chanting, first of all. I actually, as you know, I said I was an anthropology major, so I've always been curious about like, what is it about the chanting? Is it something that's universal, that humans have a desire and benefit from expressing themselves verbally? I mean, I find the chanting so so beautifully rhythmic, self-expressive, as well as life-affirming. And I can't describe that from any rational place. I can only say that perhaps it connects to some uh, part of my being that needs to kind of have that stability, that rhythm, that balance that I get from chanting. Um, And I have to say that, you know, there's so much value people have been discovering through expressing ourselves and, you know, thinking about how we connect with other people. So the sense of community is such an easy one for me to see the benefit of of practicing with other people. You know, the idea of meditation or Buddhist practice as something that we isolate ourselves off on a mountaintop and then we go become peaceful ourselves is is one idea, but it's much more uh, in our practice to be able to live in this actual world, really changing, doing, enjoying, Um, and even suffering, because that's part of life too, whatever reality in life throws at us. And so our community is a way of influencing, enforcing our own ideas about self-change on ourselves. I mean, what I don't think enforcing is right, I mean, enacting. Kind of like having the opportunity to, instead of just be peaceful by myself, to really say, no, I really believe in these Buddhist principles. I believe I can, you know, have a, a wonderful opportunity to write a book or connect with the student differently because I'm, you know, I'm really uh, chanting about them or really seeing their problem differently now. I, I can't, I can't just do that in isolation. Really my mission, my way, our way as Buddhists of connecting is being here in this present life in our own uh, jobs and our own mission. So a community of people to practice with is invaluable. You know, I, I mm-hmm. just really love the people I have connected with and really, you know, so treasure that kind of community. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then was there a third thing you asked um, me? I'm sorry. No, no, Community, no, the philosophy. philosophy. Yeah, well, as you and I have been talking, just sharing that idea about how we all have the potential to become Buddhas. And you might be questioning if you're a new practitioner or someone new to Buddhism, like, what, we can all become Buddhas? Well, I don't understand how that works. <laughs> when we think about, the, we use the term Buddhability to refer to it, which is everyone's unlimited courage, compassion, and wisdom. And sometimes even I can feel self-conscious, like, I'm a Buddha? I'm a Buddha as I'm chanting in the morning? Yeah, don't get all hung up on the title. Get hung up or get connected to the understanding that, yes, I have much more capacity for compassion, wisdom, and courage than I can even estimate. So just keep going. So if you think of it that way and understand that other people have that potential, it's a beautiful life philosophy. It's a really grounding way of approaching human relationships, the value of my own life, the value of others' lives, everything. And mm-hmm. uh, that's so consistent as a, as a Buddhist principle. Yeah. The other one that is very, very much related to that is 
the dignity of human life, each person's human life, and how that informs so many of the peace uh, initiatives um, Daisaku Ikeda has been involved in, as well as a lot of the things we do in our own lives, you know, working against uh, violence, working against uh, discrimination, all that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. I think that's really such a consistent message from Buddhism that's very consistent with psychology. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and I, I love what you said about chanting being um, so life-affirming, like the fact that we're vocalizing. I had never thought of it that way, but I completely understand what you mean. Um, I always think of like, you know, the philosophy is life-affirming, and but, but it is. It's like your whole body feels it when you're chanting. Entirely. Yeah. I'm so fortunate that I just that I was shared that somebody shared this practice with me because I did struggle a tiny bit with learning how to do mindfulness and like clear away my mind. Each thought is a leaf. Let me try to brush it away. I'm like, I really am not very good at this. But chanting. Ah, now there is something I can get into. You know, it's just it's just very it, that's what feels life affirming. It doesn't feel like I have to cut myself off and be somebody different. Stop being who I am. It just feels like go ahead and embrace and be who I am, you know? Mm. And, Actually, and voice is important. <laughs> that that's a really interesting point that I I didn't think to ask about, but you know, because mindfulness has become so popular, I know that it's a tool that many therapists use. It's also a now commercial product that many people sell. Um yeah. But, you know, and I, of course, I, I understand the value of mindfulness and, and even, you know, breathing exercises and things like that. But do you um, see a difference? Like, it sounds like you do see a difference between that and chanting. And, and for you, what would that difference be? I did it um, a while back. And I have I actually, that's not, I've done it more recently. And I felt when I have done like a, a centering kind of awareness or mindfulness practice. It's much more of a dropping into myself and being curious about my moment to moment experience. And there's something beautiful and something informative and also calming about that practice. Uh, what I felt about it was also kind of limited in a way. I didn't feel as up. I didn't feel as encouraged. I didn't feel, I felt, I felt more soothed. And what I love about my Buddhist chanting practice is I often feel more energized. And that's what I really need every morning. I was, I was thinking that our chanting practice, as I mentioned, we don't focus on any particular thing. We don't have anything we're not supposed to think about. We often have intentions. Like I'm obviously I'm thinking about my day ahead. What do I want to do? What do I need? And I'll often have it like almost miraculous brainwave of like, you know, if you did that thing at the same time, that'll be very efficient. So it's so helpful to me to be able to use that as I face my day of like, this is how it's going to, how I'd like it to go. I hope that, yeah, anyway. Where as opposed to yeah. like pushing away thoughts and getting calmer, there's a time and a place for everything. But to me, starting my day with chanting is my best. Yeah, <laughs> my best I, way to agree. Go. I agree. And ending my day too, because at the end of the day, it's an opportunity to to really have that rhythm to settle into. And and when you begin, I really just chanted, as I said, five to ten minutes to a blank wall without, uh, you know, without any other instruction. So you can begin that way, but then later. Uh, what we're chanting to is a scroll that has inscribed on it the words Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, which is the mystic law that I'm connecting with as I chant. And mm -hmm. we're not worshiping anything outside ourselves. It's really a mirror of our life. 
And so when I'm chanting that, I'm just activating and connecting with that. And at the end of the day, I'm really kind of processing or thinking about my orientation to my life and maybe what I've accomplished that day or what I would like to still work on. And there's nothing structured or rigid about it. It's just a beautiful, beautiful rhythm to the day. So I really appreciate ending my day that way, too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, If you don't mind a personal question, I am curious, like, you know, since you began practicing Buddhism, like what what you would say is like the sort of biggest change that you've experienced or like what what sort of has has shifted that you would credit to to your Buddhist practice? Yeah, just just wondering. Uh, So the one is that as much as I wanted to help people, Um, And I really worked hard, right, to become a psychologist, to learn all these different counseling techniques, to really focus on what I can do to help another person who's coming in for help. And yet at a certain level, I think I was very um, still kind of insecure about my own capacity. And this is this was not even like the first year into practice or the first five years into practice. It's probably just my nature to be very. aware and evaluative of what am I doing, which is definitely reinforced by the field of psychology. What's my impact on another human being? How do I manage that? But also a very um, insecure sense of like, I'm not really sure how to, how to who, who am I and what do I have to offer? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that my Buddhist practice gave me was a beautiful orientation towards let me get out of my own way so I can actually really listen and help this person. Instead of thinking that I'm so important and like, well, am I diagnosed with this or that? Do they need medication or not? Of course, I'm still thinking of all those questions, but I'm actually much more available because I'm so much less anxious. I'm able to really hear. And that's just a natural outcome of my Buddhist practice. I think I'm sure I'm not doing this well enough, but that was such a chatter in my head that I wasn't really able to like, let me just be here and listen to this person and then really understand that I have something to offer them. It doesn't have to be perfect. It can be contributive over time, and mm-hmm. it can be something that's in a part of our relationship, and that is a, is a, a wonderful connection that therapy and Buddhism give us. That really resonates, because in any field and in any human relationship, I think that is something many people struggle with. I mean, a, a lot of our inability to be present is that anxiety of, do I belong here? Am I good enough? Am I offering anything? What are people thinking of me? It's just continuous stream of chatter, and then you just miss what's actually happening. If we exactly. all could just not do that anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But life is interesting, right? We, this, is, this, is why we can, this is why I resonate so well, I think, with the adole- older adolescent, young adult population. I still struggle with a lot of, I'm not as pervasively mm-hmm. and not as consistently about who am I and what am I here for or all the things that I've mentioned to you. They might be challenging at that stage of their life. But I, I'm very empathic because I still feel that I am very connected with that as a human being. Mm. That those are kind of very important questions to go yeah. through. Our worth, our value, how do we contribute to another human's growth? How do I become my better self? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, definitely, I, I, I mean, I don't know if this is the right word for it, but I feel like being able to outsource all of those questions to Buddhist philosophy that's tried and tested <laughs> and way deeper than my mind can go has yes. just been so incredible. <laughs> Is it okay that it's that easy? Are you sure? You know? Yeah, just download the philosophy and then 
apply it. You don't have to reinvent it with your self-analysis. You but you know, I'm a person who likes to do things the hard way sometimes, Jihi, like we said. I know it doesn't work, but I still like to break my brain over certain stuff some days. Yeah. So the other piece, when you ask me, like, what's the biggest change? So one of the reasons why I was so interested in psychology was to understand how human beings change. And not just neutrally, but obviously because I really saw how, since a child, I saw like the inequity of life, the unfairness of life, the suffering, the, you know, just the unevenness of the experience that really makes life so much harder for people. You know, one of the things we didn't mention, Jihi, is that so many students are encountering actual real lived realities of a society that is so inequitable. And it's mm-hmm. so unfortunate that psychology often gets the name of like, let me help you adapt better to this problem that is seems like it's intrapsychic, as opposed to actually psychology has so much to offer in terms of improving society and really identifying the causes of a lot of suffering in society are due to inequitable societal conditions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you just look at like even socioeconomic status and you think about Oh, your uh, life expectancy is so much higher if you live in this neighborhood versus that. Oh, your capacity for education is so much determined by your zip code. I mean, these are no these are no brainers. These are things that are so within the realm of social design, within the realm of psychology to weigh in on. And I'm not saying we could change it overnight, but I do know that our field has so much to contribute about even acknowledging and then working to obstruct, circumvent, ameliorate at least some of those uh, social determinants and societal contributors. Mm -hmm. I guess you could put in there social isolation, um, disconnection, all those sorts of things that people feel, you know, much more than anxiety, they feel depression, hopelessness, and, and many significant mental health outcomes because of those social factors. So when I became a psychologist, I I wanted to contribute to societal change as well. And then as I continued on through my learning and working individually, I really had stepped away from the bigger picture of how can I be a positive influence in my larger environment. So one of the things that was so powerful in my own experience was attending the Undoing Racism workshop, learning about, wow, so much of our society is geared so much towards this orientation that marginalizes a lot of people and actually participates and perpetuates a lot of their suffering. And so what can I do to tackle institutional racism? Mm -hmm. And I was very anxious about becoming visible on my campus about what it would mean. And all I was doing was sending an email to other colleagues on the campus who had done that same training. But man, I had to chant. I had to chant for courage. I cried out of fear and anxiety of like, what would it mean once I stepped out of my little safe role as a psychologist in the counseling center doing this one thing, I would then open myself up to other interactions and cross-campus interactions. And yes, I was able to do all that. And yes, it blossomed into a wonderful thing that my colleagues have incorporated into our work with Mm -hmm. students, with staff about let's make some real change wherever we can and holding ourselves accountable to how we're actually doing that. We meet monthly as a group of like 30 of us and we have initiated many on-campus outward facing events and that's all through collaboration. And so that came about because I think I became much more courageous 
it didn't take that much courage. Honestly, it feels a little pathetic that I was so scared about sending an email. But to me, at that state of my life, I guess it shows how anxious and how fearful and how, how individualized I was feeling instead of really looking at human relations. It's like, yeah, I can take a part. I can, I can collaborate with others on this. This will be great. So I think it's encouraged my optimism about taking responsibility for being an individual within a community and on my campus kind of really helping uh, do what I can. And that's yeah. what we do as Buddhists, right? I take responsibility for what's around me and then I, I make a change in Absolutely. myself. I make a change in myself and then I see how else it happens. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me even just hearing hearing that example that going back to this question of you know, when it feels like the the social issues that we're facing are so insurmountable and often people feel um, stuck because they feel so small, stacked against, you know, the systems and all of those things. But I had never thought of it when you said that you felt so individualized. I had never even thought of that as like an opposite to feeling very connected and therefore capable. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's such an interesting way to look at it. And yet another case, you know, because I've struggled similarly with the, that kind of shyness and anxiety. I mean, being a journalist was like my, you know, my personality did not used to be someone who likes to talk to strangers. That's <laughs> something I really, really had to chant about. Um, but, but having a Buddhist community in which you can practice doing that is like game changing. It's a safe, very diverse space in which you just show up and participate in a group consistently and you feel so much more confident afterwards. It's just, it's that simple, you know, I mean, and then of course, on top of that, there's chanting and on top of that, there's um, the philosophy, which are obviously the, the cores of Buddhist practice. But um, yeah, I appreciate you, you because it's not a small thing. I think people feel so stuck because they feel like so isolated and then consumed by their own fear. And, and there's nowhere to test that out. It's kind of like, yeah, well, good luck to you. Good luck at that presentation. Hope it goes well. You're like, oh, okay, you know, instead mm. of I have people who I accept them as they are. They accept me as I am. And it all works out well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I actually wanted to say just to follow up to what we were just talking about, social yeah. inequity. One of the presenting concerns that people might present with, I don't know if I mentioned it at the beginning, is their awareness and the effects of living in a very inequitable and macro-aggressing society. I mean, students who are coming in because uh, they're experiencing anti-Asian violence and they're afraid to go on the train. Mm -hmm. Or students feeling like they're, no, not just feeling, knowing that they're having the impact of someone's racist belief about them and how that's being enacted in very real ways in their life. That that's not just a feeling about anxiety, that is real truth that they're encountering and then how to help them uh, be able to work differently. And so a large part as a counselor is being capable to engage with that reality mm-hmm. and to be able to understand that is a very important part of someone's experience of being marginalized and oppressed in our society. And to be able to validate because it's acknowledged as a truth is very important. So I take that responsibility very seriously. I know all my colleagues do as well. Yeah. Well, okay, on that note, I have one more follow-up on this then, and then I'll move to my my last question. But, okay, so let me just give this context. One thing that I'm consistently curious about is sort of what the limitations of psychology are and where Buddhism sort of takes it to the next level. And one area in which I'm guessing, you know, that there there is some answer, but I wonder what you would say is, um, you mentioned earlier how important it is to be curious and self-aware. But I think sometimes, like, if you do do that, you just discover 
a lot of hurt or a lot of pain or a lot of things that are stacked against you or a lot of your own fears. And then those things can very easily turn into limitations. Like, okay, I, I now understand why I feel all of these things, but they're all really real and I don't, I can't do anything about them. And then it just becomes almost like a negative loop. Um, so I, I, I'm wondering, you know, like is, how would you approach that? And, and do you feel, I mean, the only answer I've ever found in my not so long life so far is Buddhism directly addresses that piece of it. But I'm, I'm curious what you would say. I think that is a very valuable thing to remind us about is that we tend to be hard on ourselves and those of us who are hard on ourselves tend to perseverate over that and then to really keep feeling like I must be capable of actually keeping to dig into more and more of this and then I'll be able to. So it's almost like a little form of self-torture or self-flagellation. So I think the only way to overcome that would be to be able to have dialogue. And Mm -hmm. it would be lovely if people could get therapy and counseling. Our society does not seem to make that easily accessible. And I've heard of people even chanting to be able to find a good therapist and then Mm -hmm. having to persevere through calling 10 and then 10 more. But there are resources. And so chanting for to be able to get that, I would say therapy, counseling, sharing your thoughts with another friend, taking that risk. I think being able to talk with another human being is a human is a human need. And so mm-hmm. that to me, and you say you find that in Buddhism, mm-hmm. you know, don't keep all that suffering to yourself and keep blaming yourself for it. We have a saying in Buddhism of from this moment forward. And so, yes, we could acknowledge the past. I am a great believer in the value of uncovering the reasons for why I understand the world to be this way, of raking over the coals of how I came to a certain belief. But I'm also very um, empowered by the sense of yes and what matters now is what you do with that information. So what are you going to do? Okay, I can't change the past. But from this moment forward, maybe I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to experiment with this, I'm going to say it this way. So that's what I think Buddhism that is a limitation. I mean, therapy itself, uh, probably has at least historically, a sense of looking backwards and not forwards. But I think it's always with the understanding of there is a future we're going for. There is a better future. There is something we're aiming towards. And how can we help you get to your goals? But yeah. it's not always as straightforward. So I think I think certain types of therapies, and I think Buddhism makes it much more in your face of like, yeah, well, now what? What can I do with that? It's no good just sitting around beating myself up and feeling bad about myself. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. There's always something you can do if you can summon the energy and the wisdom and the courage to actually do it um yes so i i wonder then like if uh you know since you've been practicing for some time now are there any kind of buddhist concepts or um quotes that have like really stood out to you that you've held on to you know given your background in psychology that um you find relevant to sort of add to the conversation definitely Mm -hmm. so one of my favorite quotes uh that i think would add to our conversation is uh, a letter that was written by the Buddhist reformer I mentioned, Nishiren Daishonin, Mm -hmm. to one of his followers. And he was encouraging her in her faith, but he was also, I think, referring to a more general principle. So I'm I'm actually just lifting this and I'll talk a little bit about what it means to me. But it says, uh, the journey to Kamakura to Kyoto, these are two places in Japan, obviously, takes 12 days. I don't even know what Uh, form of travel they were using that it would take 12 days to get that distance. But the important part is if you travel for 11, but stop with only one day remaining, how can you admire the moon over the capital? Mm. It's such a beautiful uh, 
evocation of a natural principle of the moon rising over a beautiful place that, of course, we know the value of nature and how restorative that is and connecting with nature is always very um, helpful, alleviating. But to think about you getting that goal, having the opportunity to see something that you wouldn't have if you didn't push a little further. I think that um, is my, is very consistent as a psychologist with like, you know, you're not going to get the goods if you don't keep going. So let's keep going. Let's just go <laughs> one more day and see what happens. Something that all, I, I think every counselor knows this, any mental health practitioner, maybe many of you know this wisdom, is change is a process, not an event. And I really love that journey to, Kamakura, to Kyoto from Kamakura because that's exactly right. You know, in this society, sometimes we're expecting insta change. You know, we want this thing to happen quickly. And yes, of course, it's important to you know have momentum and re- remain you know stal- stalwart in our progression. But you can't expect it to happen so quickly. So just really acknowledging that any change is a process, and to give ourselves that grace as well, to give others the grace to change, to give ourselves the grace to change that opportunity. That's an important piece as well. So yeah, I think- actually, that um, you know one one thing that we haven't spoken about explicitly, but is sort of underneath everything is the the core sort of project of Buddhism is what we call our own human revolution or inner transformation, that it is exactly as you're describing this kind of lifelong journey of continuously seeing, you know, like what you can bring out of your life and apply to different situations if you do do your best to tap into your bootability. And I'm wondering, like, is um, was when you first learned about human revolution, when you started your practice, did that feel like new or revolutionary? Or were you like, this is, you know, like, what was your reaction to that? And how do you understand what it is? <laughs> it's so funny. I just had never heard of such a thing. I really saw like self-improvement is probably the closest that I had come to in terms of psychological terms hmm. that talk about, yeah, I can improve myself. I can work on my self-esteem. I could work on my public speaking abilities. I could work on my you know, performance abilities in a certain setting, but it really was not a kind of a global project, which is really what we do as Buddhists, is really understand ourselves as a global project, because of course, when we change, the world around us changes, and we are expecting, and it does happen, that the world can ripple out to other environments, including world peace, but the human revolution part of that is really, I take responsibility for my own development, my own capacity to become the best version of myself, that's remarkable. Nobody's ever talked to me about that before. So I had a lot to learn about that. That was nothing. I I don't think that's mentioned anywhere else, Jihee. I I think that's probably a very Buddhist. um, That's so interesting. It really is, Jihee. I didn't. And my maybe because I grew up practicing Buddhism, I take it for granted. I'm realizing hearing you say this. What's the difference then, you know, for someone who's completely new listening? Yeah. What's the difference in, in your mind between like, self-improvement, personal development, the things that are very common, and human revolution. You know, I think when I was mentioning those examples of like, I could become a more improved version of myself, I was really limiting myself to like, I can understand that I might expect improvement in these areas. And so I was kind of compartmentalizing, like, I'm basically this one person, Elizabeth, and I have these traits and these temperaments. And so within that range, I can strive to improve this way or that way. But I didn't really uh, understand myself as kind of a fuller human being. Mm -hmm. I was looking at myself as kind of an improvement project versus like, what are the capacities of a human being and how much our world is enriched by so many people's diverse talents and uh, specializations. 
what could human beings accomplish? So the, the anti-racist work, I think, touches much more on how I was beginning to think about myself beyond my little cubicle, beyond my little sense mm-hmm. of, I know what I'm supposed to do as a professional, it would be this role. Oh, I'm Elizabeth, and I don't even know what I might accomplish. But I think I really want to tap into this area because this is what troubles me most. And this is the suffering I see most. And I think I, as a white person, need to be working on most, um, you know, with other white folks and with people of color, but really to understand racism and mm. uh, dismantle it in my work towards it in my lifetime. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, uh, I think and this is a wonderful note to end on, actually, because I think what you're hitting on is um, the like ultimate kind of uh teaching of Buddhism is that we practice for ourselves and for other people. Not, not, it's not self-sacrificial, nor is it completely self-centered. And so the, you're right, like when you're trying to improve yourself for the sake of yourself and your own satisfaction, there's a limit. But if you're trying to develop yourself so that you can contribute more to the well-being of other people or encourage people who have similar challenges to yours or whatever that looks like for you, um, you like pull out a whole different level <laughs> exactly <laughs> of stuff from your life that's amazing so yeah and there's also so much more you connect with other people to collaborate with their strengths and that's where we come back to re- remember our original conversation sort of was about like there's something wrong with me no buddhism said there's nothing wrong with you you have your own talents your own challenges but when i get outside of my own way and i pull out my own strengths and capacities and try to contribute more i can connect with other people who are doing similar things mm-hmm. so i think that leads and accelerates this process of human revolution as well as societal possibilities for improvement <laughs> i i want to um if you're okay with it the question that i always end the show with for anybody who's listening if you could give them one piece of advice so specifically if anyone listening is new to buddhism but they are sort of struggling with you know personal anxiety or existential anxiety or just feeling like they can trust themselves and feel connected to themselves and other people what one piece of advice would you give them it's i would say part of me wants to say well take a chance take a be courageous and connect with another human being and see how it goes you know share your fears but i also know that that is very scary for people who really suffer from strong uh social anxiety and so that might be a bridge too far and so i kind of just want to back it up and say maybe you could just start with having some more compassion for yourself maybe you could just start by sending yourself loving energy as you try chanting and i really do recommend you try chanting and just have a curiosity about it and fear not. There's nothing you can do wrong while chanting. And so whatever you share with another practitioner or somebody who introduced you to chanting, or you want to write in and say, is it supposed to go this way? You know, whatever you want to share about that is you are welcome to share any questions, any thoughts, any doubts, any fears. There, this is one of my favorite things about this practice is there's no rules against um, asking questions, saying the wrong thing. We are so because we expect that of ourselves, we're so accepting and encouraging of that kind of seeking spirit is what we call it, is -hmm. being able to ask and pursue the things that intrigue you. There's nothing wrong with your intellect. There's nothing wrong with your way you think about things. Go ahead and open up about it. We, you're received, you are fully received and encouraged. Here are my key takeaways from today's conversation. First, 
Struggling with feelings of anxiety doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. As Buddhism teaches, each of us has an incredible, unlimited reserve of courage, compassion, and wisdom within our own life, also known as our Buddhability. And chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo is a way to tap into it. At times, this might look like manifesting the wisdom and courage to seek out professional mental health support if that's what we need in a certain situation. But in all cases, it requires being willing to believe in ourselves and our ability to change, which, according to Buddhism, always begins with taking responsibility for our situation and identifying what action we can take to improve it. On that note, I want to leave you with the following words from Daisaku Ikeda, which read, Feelings of pain, insecurity, frustration, and sadness may assail you. Youth means grappling with all kinds of problems. It means resolving them in spite of all difficulties, pushing aside the dark clouds of despair and advancing toward the sun, toward hope. This strength is the hallmark of youth. Having problems, making mistakes, or feeling regrets is only natural. What's important is to be undefeated by them. In the midst of worries and struggles, always look forward and advance. While struggling with various problems, it's vital that you chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo and advance somehow, even if it's only one or two inches. Your lives will be enriched and deepened in proportion to the pain and grief you suffer, the degree to which you struggle, and how much you chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. The hardships you face now will all serve to nourish your growth into leaders of the 21st century.